first of all, thank you so much for checking out episode number two of Untold with me, Mike Adam. This podcast is basically a series of interviews with people who have lived on the streets or bounced around from shelter to shelter, people from all different walks of life. The hope is that this show will make you rethink what you thought you knew about the homeless. Welcome to Untold. In studio with me, I have Philip Malbranch. Um, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, uh, first of all, tell me your age. I'm 61. 61. And um, give me a little background on on your childhood. Where'd you grow up? Did you have any siblings? Stuff like that. My parents were uh, immigrants from Haiti. And uh, I have two siblings. The, the older uh, was born in Haiti. And after he was born, both parents uh, came. My father came first, actually, to work, to find work. And uh, I have uh, a younger uh, sibling, a sister, who was also, of course, born here in New York. So uh, for the first four years of my life, we were in Queens, and then we moved to Rockland County. Oh, wow. In Nyack, yeah. So I grew up in Nyack, graduated Nyack High School. When it comes to school, were you a good student? Um, I didn't... uh, Maybe because my parents didn't go to college, I didn't learn to study well. Uh, So I did not shine in high school. Uh, I did not shine in college. Did you have a favorite subject? I did. I I loved history. I didn't know what I could do with it, though. So I lagged uh, in coming to uh, an understanding of professional opportunities. Mm -hmm. I came very late to that. Um, but that was my favorite subject. I love sports too. I did uh, develop a reading habit. I read Sports Illustrated in, in school. Yeah. Uh, and those, uh, my father was good to subscribe for me. And I recall the piles in my room of Sports Illustrated. And uh, I think it did help me uh, later on because I'm, I'm writing a lot now. That's awesome. And yeah, that absolutely counts, Philip. I'm telling you that's more reading than I've ever done, so good for you. Um, what did you end up going to college for then? What was your degree in? I got a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology. Okay. Um, and uh, th- without distinction, I finished uh, and uh, appreciated the education that I that I did get and realized uh, quite late the value that it, that it uh, has had for me. But that's part of the story. Yeah. And, um, uh, but I did go to college. I did finish college. I did appreciate that the experience. I'm glad that uh, I was a college student on a campus. Sure. Because uh, I think that makes a difference um, compared to commuting to a campus. Yeah. So, what was, the, what was the school? We didn't say. I went to Geneva College oh, okay. in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, which is a. Uh, um, a liberal arts, small liberal arts college run by the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Mm-hmm. So it's a Presbyterian school with an evangelical environment. Um, and that part was important for for education uh, at that school. Uh, the, the faith and learning aspect was very much a part of the, uh, the cultural life at the school. Yeah. Where did your siblings end up going? My brother went to another Christian college in Indiana, Taylor University. My sister went to Gordon College, another Christian college in Massachusetts, uh, at first, but she transferred to go to pharmacy school. Oh, okay. 
Uh, so she became a professional. She went to a prof- professional school, and uh, uh, that w- that's that paints the picture of our of our family. Yeah, yeah. Now, how was it um, getting out of school and trying to transition into the workforce? Did you get a job immediately after? No. Before I graduated, I I learned that sociology majors were at the bottom rung of salary scale. I did pursue an ambition to go abroad to to learn language and to study international affairs. So a couple of years after school, I went to France Mm -hmm. and enrolled in a, or tried to, I took an entrance exam at a very uh, prestigious school in Paris, which was suggested to me, it was recommended to me, to my surprise, because of my, you know, I, I studied without distinction at, at school. Right, right. This was a, a school of distinction for politics and, and international affairs in Paris, the Institute of Political Studies, l'Institut d'Etudes Politiques de Paris. I didn't, uh, I ended up auditing classes there. Okay. Learning French politics and, and uh, European history and so forth. So even though I didn't end up uh, succeeding in the entrance exam in the regular program, I learned a lot in the effort and ended up staying in France for a total of six years oh, be- wow. because I wanted to learn the language well, because I wanted to have that experience. And it was indeed valuable and is helping me even today, uh, even though <laughs> I'm still struggling. Um, so uh, my interest in refugee assistance Never panned out to a career niche, but I did work with refugees uh, in Paris, as a matter of fact, at the American Cathedral in Paris, an Episcopal Cathedral. For a time, uh, I directed that program to help the increasing number in the 1980s of English-speaking refugees coming to France. Uh, There was civil war in Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lankans were going to Germany first, uh, probably England first, but England was shutting its doors. Mm Then they were going to Germany. Germany began shutting its doors, and an increasing number of English-speaking uh, refugees were going to France. And I, my responsibility was to pass on information regarding the French organizations that would uh, receive asylum seekers and refugees. Why even come back to the U.S.? It sounds like you were thriving. Uh, thriving is not the word, because uh, there wasn't a, cur- a career niche there. Mm. Um, and during that period in French history, the European community was solidifying. And so the advantages that Americans had in France, for instance, since the end of World War II were diminishing. Uh. The, the consolidation of the European community meant that Americans were uh, less uh, privileged as they had been at, at the end of the war, World War II. Uh, so my opportunities were... Uh, were being reduced, and that too is part of my story. There's there's more to that story, but um, generally speaking, that's what was going on in Europe. That's part of what was going on in, in Europe in that time in the 1980s. That uh, American power was, uh, though always and still strong, um, certain opportunities for Americans were decreasing because of the the increase in influence uh, and forming of the European Community. So you saw those opportunities dwindling, and you said, I'm getting out of here, going back to the States. I'm going to see if I could get a, a, a job back well, there. Well, truthfully, my ambition was to stay yeah. because my French was good enough. Yeah. Uh, I have relatives in France. Uh, I had made friends in Europe. 
uh, I enjoyed the European lifestyle and, and other aspects of life in Europe. Um, but the doors were closing for me, and I saw the uh, I saw that that picture clear enough, and and had to return. So you come back here. Um, what's going on with your mother, father, brother, and sister at that point? Well, they're carrying on. Uh, they're, you know, they they got married, my siblings, and uh, had their own careers where they were. Um, in the New York area, or no? Uh, my sister in the New York uh, tri-state area, yes. My brother had gone farther afield uh, to the to Illinois. I think he was at the time. He was. Uh, Settling in in his own uh, personal situation, he was married and having children. Um, so I was still trying to plug away at my own uh, desires, uh, my interest in history and politics and uh, international affairs, generally speaking. Uh, but it was a struggle all along, and it has been. Were you able to find work when you got back here, or is that where things kind of took a turn uh i was how old were you at that point when i came back mm -hmm. i was probably in my early late 30s tw late 20s early 30s probably okay. uh probably 30 around 30 30 31 and um still had trouble finding a job in my uh field of interest um, so I had odd jobs but I did have an opportunity in the early 90s to go abroad again and to work with the refugees again so I was hired to be uh, an interpreter in the refugee camps at Guantanamo Bay Cuba Wow. Before it became a, the prison that we know of today. It was a refugee camp because in the mid-90s, at the same time, Cubans and Haitians were fleeing their respective countries. <clears throat> so there were Cuban balseros, boat people, fleeing Cuba to go to Florida. There were Haitian boat people fleeing Haiti because of regime change there. And the U.S. Coast Guard was uh, picking them up on the high seas and bringing them to Guantanamo Bay. So Guantanamo Bay was transformed from a Navy base to refugee camp, or the refugee camp was set up on the Navy base. And uh, the military personnel uh, was a joint task force. So I was hired by a private company. I was a civilian contractor to be uh, one of the interpreters serving the military forces there, running the camps. So we worked with a joint task force, mostly with the Army running the camps, but there were others. Uh, the, the Air Force was there running, for instance, the, uh, the health clinics. Uh, the Marines were there, too. All of the forces were there. So for me, a civilian, it was a very interesting experience working with the armed forces. Uh, as someone with a sociology background, it was interesting observing those different cultures, subcultures. And and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed working with the refugees. Uh, that was very much the sort of thing I wanted to do all along, yeah. but couldn't find a, a career niche in that. And eventually that ended. We were hired on temporary contracts uh, three months at a time. 
And for a period of uh, 14 months, my contract was renewed. Not everyone's was, but um, I worked a total of 14 months at Guantanamo, which was a fulfilling experience um, with its challenges, but it was, uh, it was fascinating for me otherwise. Um, but once that was over, I could not find a niche uh, in the refugee assistance field. Which is... <laughs> It's just crazy to me because I know you felt probably that you weren't really um, getting where you wanted to be in your career. But resume-wise, it looks like you're building this resume that, you know, you could go on to be a politician. Uh, you know, just this this work you're doing is very – maybe it's not making the money necessarily that you want, or but it is, like you said, fulfilling work and kind of – along the lines of of what you wanted to be doing so it just that that blows my mind that you know there it didn't connect it didn't fuse together so you come back to the u.s to new york for the second time well i went back to washington i was i was living in washington because i had i had gotten a job working in a credit union for instance Mm -hmm. in northern in um sorry in suburban maryland outside of washington Mm -hmm. That was what I was able to land coming back uh, from Europe. I went to to Washington where I was a student earlier in a semester program Mm -hmm. uh, from Geneva College. And um, I I lived in Washington for a while, so I had that experience too, which was interesting and fascinating. Uh, After Guantanamo, I went back to Washington, which was at the time of the first government shutdown. So uh, that was the context of Washington, D.C. at that time in 1995. Yeah. And um, so my situation was still precarious professionally, and um, I can't even say professionally because uh, there was no profession. Um, but that's the way it was for years. Um, and I began to develop... A theory about that, uh, there was a reason why my situation had been precarious all along. And I was suspicious of that because I, I was college educated. I, I didn't have uh, things that would lead to instability, really. Um, so I began, to, I began to study it. I began to observe it and to use what little training I had to try to understand what was going on. And years down the road, uh, I developed a theory, much later than where, where we are in the story. I developed the theory, and that's why I began to write uh, later on. Now I'm writing regularly. Well, you can't, you can't leave that cliffhanger, so tell me the—just give me a snapshot of the theory, and then we'll, we'll get to that later on. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have come to reason that World War II never ended— that current events make up a continuation of Nazi activity in the world, including in the United States. Uh, American extremism, American extremists have always been in our society. And I've observed that extremists throughout the world uh, are operating probably in all societies, but according to the cultural context of each society. In France, for instance, the extreme right has legislative representation. They're out in the open. They debate. 
they use or misuse language in the National Assembly in France, uh, in the newspapers. You read what they're saying every day. American politics is less willing to accept that kind of language. Um, but in the American context, extremists have been operating since the inception of this country. That's why there was slavery at the beginning. Slavery being an extremist, um, evidence of extremist behavior. And extremists still love slavery today. They just change uh, the way they do things. Uh, they change sometimes the way they name things so that we're not as appalled as we might have been 150 years ago. So uh, we know from World War II history, from Nazi Germany, that um, the Nazis, for instance, were quite willing to take jobs away from people, as they did, um, to allow people to fall into poverty, to control lives, and so forth. So I came to believe that uh, my right to work was removed from me. Uh, and that my life situation is a sequel to the civil rights movement, let's say, because we've noticed that the civil rights movement withered, died out uh, with the assassinations and, and, and other events. I, I understand what you're saying, and uh, I don't think anyone is going to argue with you that uh, people of color, black, brown, men and women have it tough in this country to this day but I'm curious would your sister and brother agree with your theory because what made their path different from yours good question Uh, because I've asked it myself in observing and I believe that what happens is that there are different scenarios and people are are given different scenarios to to hide what's going on. Uh, they wouldn't want to do to my siblings what they're doing to me because they want to strain the rela- relationships in our family. Uh, so if somebody is successful, or if the others are successful, and I'm not, I'm the one being targeted for blame in the family. For instance. Or in society generally, and that's what's been happening uh, generally. Uh, homelessness, I've come to conclude, is a form of incarceration. So some people who experience homelessness uh, are targeted because of the propaganda, the anti-homelessness propaganda that, that's out there. People have a tendency to blame those who experience homelessness for their homelessness, when that is not the total story. Those who experience homelessness are targets of oppression. There's a lot of oppression in our society, but it's not getting, it's not always getting press. Uh, so I have been, uh, in my analysis, I've been locked, incarcerated in the experience of homelessness, but others don't see it as incarceration. They, being influenced by propaganda, will say something's wrong with him. He has, a psych- he has a psychiatric disability. He has other things going on that we don't know about. So what happens is that the, the mistrust develops. And that is the iron fence, the iron gate 
of homelessness, <laughs> the mistrust that builds, and I see mistrust proliferating in society, harming personal relationships generally, not only around the homeless, but generally uh, affecting marriage, the divorce rate, um, American politics, the mistrust is just rising like a like a flood, if if I may use that cliche. But that's the tool. Build the mistrust in society so uh, solidarity diminishes. Um, social justice movements uh, are troubled, and so forth. That's kind of what I see generally. And we're going to get back to this, but uh, last question on this before we rewind a little bit. Do you think it's as specific as we are going to suppress Philip, or are you talking in a general sense? Another excellent question, because we learn in sociology from my undergraduate sociology uh, experience. Uh, I had to go back to that. I wasn't very strong, you know, when I was in school, but I did recall that the sociological imagination, which is a, a major principle in sociology, teaches us that what happens personally is related to the public. The public and the personal are related. So to have a proper analysis of what's going on, I have to link the two. So what's happening with Philip is likely happening in the public sphere. And I've come to see that. I agree with that. That uh, I am likely not the only one uh, having this experience. That it, it is a wider phenomenon across the, the society, and that it is a, a usual tool. It's a, a modus operandi of extremists in the society. All right. So let's go back. You're in Washington, D.C. Things are not working out. Do you come back to New York? Uh, after a time, I did come back to New York. Uh, I was constrained, really, to actually go back to Jersey, where my sister was living. Uh, but then, because I was looking for work in the city, ended up moving back to the city, and was in Brooklyn for a number of years. I first went, though, to Queens, where another relative was living, and first became homeless in Queens. Um, I had gotten a job in the South Bronx in a, a child development center, which was a very interesting experience. I, I, I love children. Uh, that helped me, but I realized that children were more of a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I could have told you that, Philip. And despite a love for them, <laughs> uh, I, it was a great experience, really, but it was a challenge, and, and I was glad that I had the, the experience at Guantanamo helped me. <laughs> <laughs> the experience at Guantanamo in the refugee camp served me well because I learned even more patience. Uh, um, I learned patience as an interpreter. Uh, I thought I had patience before I, I even went there. But when I came back to the children, I realized that uh, the challenge to be even more patient with them was necessary, was needed. It was, certainly was present. Um so I worked there for uh, a couple of years, but there came uh, some 
uh, contra temps. And I became homeless at that time. That was the late 90s. And from that point, for most of the period from that point, I've had the experience of homelessness, you know, um, episodic work, uh, but precariousness and instability during much of that time since 1998. Now, you are the perfect example of, I think, the the stereotype that, that people think of um, because... I think one of the first questions people ask is, well, where's his core, his family, his wife, his relatives? And from what you've told me, it seems like you had a good relationship with your mother and father, with uh, your siblings and and some extended family. So where were they at this time? Well, the experience the phenomenon of homelessness affects family of course too and so family like the rest of society misunderstands what's going on misunderstands the reasons for employment instability again the person going through that is the is the blame um, so extremists in my analysis, um, some will tire of me hearing that, but that's the language that I'm using, um, will interfere in the workforce. I won't get hired for whatever reason, and there are reasons that are thrown out there that render my socioeconomic situation difficult for me. But the family, in the meantime, like society, is looking for evidence of success. <laughs> and... Uh, but those who enjoy using discrimination are taking away the evidence of success, which really recruits even the family and friends and the social circle to do what the extremists would do, uh, the mistrust that builds, um, the jokes, the, all the negative things that uh, grow out of one's experience of homelessness builds and... Um, that interferes in smooth relationships. Mm. So, plus, my personal relationships are interfered with continually. Um, I've never been married. That was not my plan. Uh, because of my generation, uh, I was kind of like my peers in wanting to um, postpone marriage, but it was never my plan to... <laughs> to turn away from the, from the idea. Yeah. But my personal relationships have been interfered with uh, repeatedly so that the, appear the appearance of singlehood is, is the lasting one and the one that people read. Um, so I have had to, as time passes, I've had to manage those misunderstandings too. And first, come first though, coming come to an understanding of what was going on personally, why what was going on with the relationships, why did um, love interests or partners leave or or die? So there's a pattern of all that stuff going on over the years that have helped me develop the theory that I have. 
So what I'm what I'm kind of getting from this is that uh, your family members, to a degree, were placing blame on you, and it turned you off to them and the situation. So you didn't want to move in with them or anything like that, right? Uh, to a degree, there were uh, strains in the relationships because of those misunderstandings, because of the lack of evidence of success. There was a period when I was estranged where there was no contact, mm-hmm. but it was I was encouraged to deal with that <laughs> uh, and realized that I, I could. I was encouraged to find the wisdom in keeping in touch with the family and trying to to persuade them of my experience and my my position and once i started doing that i continued to do that so the communi- lines of communication were redeveloped and have been constant since then and to some degree there was a better understanding of my experience uh, I learned, though, volunteering in the nonprofit sector from community organizers that what I needed to do was organize my own family, my own social circle. And when did that start? Uh, that was uh, I don't know now, maybe eight or ten years ago. Okay. I realized that that was the work that needed to be done. It was an organizing work. I didn't know much about community organizing, but I was learning as a volunteer. And so um, there was some work of persuading that needed to happen. And I gradually realized that I needed to be more proactive than I had been to do that sort of communication, the community organizing stuff in my social circle. And eventually, surprise, surprise, it led to my turning to Facebook. I didn't grow up with Facebook. I didn't find it appealing. Such a good tool for that, though. I didn't find the writing on Facebook appealing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that is what I turned to, and you're right. Uh, It has been uh, helpful to me in doing that sort of work to bring others who knew me and who know me to come to some understanding of my experience and my thoughts and expressions and my, I guess my personality comes back to, to, to them. Um, so I'm grateful for, for Facebook, I, I admit, um, because I, I've come to count on it to express myself as a writer um, and to tell my story. And um, I think that that's been helpful. And for those that don't know, um, just be more specific with the kind of work that you are currently doing. Um, I was in Brooklyn in in 2011. I was using the services at St. John's Bread and Life in Brooklyn, the largest social service agency in Brooklyn, in Bed-Stuy. And Care for the Homeless had come to do a a focus group there, and I was invited to the focus group. That was my introduction to Care for the Homeless. Then I was invited to participate in their consumer advisory board. And this still was all while you were bouncing around on the streets from 
you know i was in shelters yeah okay i was uh at that time i was probably in a drop-in center which is a shelter without beds uh there are chairs there you sit in chairs all night which is a hazard it's a health hazard because you develop uh, leg infections which i did but for an extended period that's where i was and was going to saint john's bread and life for social services and food so I was introduced to Care for the Homeless and be, became a participant in the Consumer Advisory Board, which is a place where those who are experiencing homelessness can advise, can help in the governance of the organization because part of the culture of the organization is uh, the inclusion of people with the experience of homelessness in the governance. That's always a challenge, but that is one of the purposes. Uh, so I participated uh, and have since that time with the organization. Did long-term residency come with that? No. Uh, I was uh, in a shelter somewhere through most of that period. Um, at that time, Care for the Homeless had but one shelter, and I think it was a women's shelter. So... Uh, but I was introduced to the organization and got involved in the activities of the organization, some of which uh, is policy advocacy. That was my, introdu my introduction to policy advocacy and policy advocacy issues related to, uh, to homelessness. Years earlier, I had been involved in some of that uh, related to refugees when I was living in Washington. But um, uh, regarding homeless, homelessness, homelessness issues... Uh, this was my introduction, and I started learning about uh, legislation and so forth related to that. A year after that, in 2012, I became a member of the National Health Care for the Homeless Council, of which Care for the Homeless is a member, and began learning about policy advocacy issues on a national level. Uh, it was a new, a new jargon that I had to learn, a new language. Um, and it's, it's still complicated sometimes. Um, but I appreciated uh, another human rights organization that I could uh, learn from and um, remain interested in, the, uh, in this issue on a national level. So life brought you here. Do you feel like it's where you should be, for lack of a better Word? Do you feel fulfilled with the work you're doing now? How do you feel about it? I feel fulfilled about the writing that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I think that my journey, as unfortunate as it has been and unpleasant, um, has given me insight that probably nobody else has. So I realize the value in what I've given myself to do, which gives me a feeling of fulfillment. Even with empty pockets, I feel a sense of worth. I, I felt that before from the faith that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel stronger because I realize that what I've come to see, the insight that I have, even the sociological insight that I have, is, is valuable. Um, and I'm using it. I'm beginning to communicate it. And that gives me increasing confidence. So what are like the, the short-term 
long-term goals you're now looking at, Philip? Uh, Short-term is to continue writing, continue telling my story, or explaining my analysis. Mm. Um, I think it's valuable for for the city, even city government, municipal government, and for national government. For I think the current events from the news coming out of Washington um, is very much a part of it. I, I think that I have insight on that too. So I'll continue writing as I can, what I can. Longer term, it's harder to say because I'm still in a precarious situation. Poverty means, uh, in a sense, powerlessness. I don't feel totally powerless because with my insight, I have power. (laughs) Um, I believe that. I believe I have some influence um, despite my precarious situation because I have not only knowledge but uh, a conception, the way the knowledge is put together. And discovering writing skill, I think, that I didn't realize I had before. So those are assets. I have uh, assets that are not monetary. And um, I feel good about that. I'm grateful for that. Um, So the longer term plans uh, are more questionable. I have ideas. I have ambitions. I I, want to be... I want to be live a fulfilling life, um, even as I approach the age of <laughs> retirement. <laughs> uh, because of unlawful activity, I've not been able to. I've not been able to make it in my country, you know, with a college degree. Um, so I still have to struggle for that, for those basic rights. I'm struggling. So long term, I I want to pursue the dreams that I have um, in writing, uh, to have a family, to be professionally recognized one way or the other. Who knows where and what domain? I don't know. But um, uh, those are some of the things I think about at this stage of my life. You know what people are going to say after listening to this? Tell me. And this is the, the reason why I wanted to do this. They're going to be like, I can't imagine that guy on the streets. And I love that because you are, I I know you are hard on yourself, but you are accomplished. You are talented. You're well-spoken. Thank you. So I'm curious, how did you even interact with people on the streets? Did you find a community? Were you very much to yourself? I imagine that was tough for you. First, I'd like to say that people listening should re-examine their idea of a person who is homeless because generally folks have been influenced by propaganda, by a distortion of the idea of a person going through this experience. Anybody can be homeless. Even somebody who has a clean history related to drugs or crime, criminal activity, Anybody can be homeless. If the apartment building you live in catches fire, you could be homeless tomorrow. So uh, that is the story. I, you'll remind me of your, the rest of your question, um, but I want to follow, uh, follow yeah, up yeah, on yeah. this. Um, the, the homeless population is made up of all kinds of people. It's not only somebody who has a drug addiction. Or mental illness. Or a mental illness. Uh, 40%, I believe that's the correct figure, of persons experiencing homelessness in New York City 
are women with children. And that is driven by domestic violence. And you can't put all those women in one box either because they come from all uh, walks of life. So part two of that question, how was it for you just interacting with others in a similar predicament to you on the streets? Well, um, because everybody's different, even on the streets, uh, I didn't feel comfortable on the street. I preferred to go to shelter. Other people may have had bad experiences in the shelter, so people live on the streets. I have been on the street, but temporarily. My situation uh, concerns a series of unlawful evictions. No decision to be homeless was mine. (laughs) I have been abused by landlords repeatedly. So, on one occasion, it was sudden. I was on the street because a landlord locked me out. Um, But I I ended up eventually, after two or three days, going to shelter. So um, I'm grateful for my education to help me with the relationships on the street because I studied sociology. That gave me some insight on even relationships on the street. Um, I came to understand, because of my family background, that everybody wants respect. And so uh, even people on the street. And I realized that that was an asset that I was carrying around with me. (laughs) I knew how to say thank you and please. And on the street, people want to hear that too, just like in the finer homes of of our society. Now, playing devil's advocate, Philip, um, what blame would you place on yourself in this whole, in, in your life up to this point? That's a good question. I think that I have been patient, and I could probably wonder if I've been too patient. I wanted to understand what was going on, so I spent the time to do that. I have always wanted to do what I wanted to do. I've always wanted to use the time, my time, to do what I wanted to do. Uh, Maybe to a fault. Um... I have taken the time to read what I wanted to read instead of maybe reading something else or doing something else. Um, that is one of the first things that come comes to mind. Philip, I, I could talk to you all day, first of all. I had such a wonderful time with you. Um, man, I, I appreciate you doing this, and I, I just wish you the best. I, I really enjoyed myself immensely. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. I enjoyed it too. Big thank you once again to Philip for being brave, coming on the show, and sharing his story. Also, thank you to Care for the Homeless. Care for the Homeless fights homelessness by delivering high-quality and client-centered health care, human services, and shelter to homeless individuals and families. And they advocate for policies that will prevent and end homelessness. To find out more about them, to get involved, visit careforthehomeless.org. And thank you for listening to Untold.